You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast that deals with all things therapists and the things that show up in our office and in our continuing conversation around the world events happening in Afghanistan and our reactions. And as we've continued to do throughout our podcast history of trying to bring in very timely episodes to help our community. We had spoken yesterday with Rob Bates about working with military members, and we are also very fortunate to have one of our very close friends from the show, uh, Sarah Stanizai, licensed marriage and family therapist and owner of Prospect Therapy, talking about working with Afghan Americans and people from the community, people who have personal ties to Afghanistan, whether familial or uh, friends, and helping us to be able to work in the healing process for this community as this very deeply and troubling time for them is coming out. And we're just so thankful for the expertise and the opportunity to have this discussion here today. So thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. There's some some things to talk about today. And, and so I want to just open this space. And the first question that we ask all of our guests is, who are you? And what are you putting out to the world? I'm a lot of things. I'm glad to be here. and I'm glad to have this conversation. Um, it is a very weird time, but you know, a lot of the organizers that I'm in communication with reminded us to take every opportunity and say yes to the interviews and make sure that this issue gets accurate visibility. And um, we hear from people who are affected by it. Uh, like Kurt said when he introduced me, uh, my name is Sarah Stanizai. I'm a licensed therapist and I run a group practice based out of Long Beach, California. Um, we focus on serving the queer and trans community as well as first-generation Americans like myself. Um, over the past almost two years, I have focused more on serving the Afghan-American community. Uh, my family's from Afghanistan. My sister and I were both born here born in West LA, uh, but both of my parents um, were born and raised there and came, you know, in 79, escaping something similar to what's going on now. But um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's also true that we haven't really seen anything like this. So what I put out into the world is my goal is to really help people understand and accept all the different parts of their identities. And for myself, my relationship with the Afghan part of my identity has been, you know, a lifelong process. And so I'm really happy that I get to help others on that same journey as well. I started watching your video on uh, your website around accepting your identity as an Afghan American and how hard that has been for you. Mm -hmm. What do you feel comfortable sharing about that now? Yeah, it's really interesting I am comfortable sharing about it, which in itself is a testament to <laughs> yeah. uh, how I've kind of integrated that as part of myself. But I work with a lot of Afghan Americans now, and we're all at different parts of that process. 
there are some common themes such as there's so much mystery around Afghanistan and people didn't know what it was, they've never heard of it. Many people don't understand Islam in general. Um, and that was hard to, it was hard to kind of be the only one that a lot of people knew. But many times that's actually preferable because then when people did become aware around 9-11 and now after this, their understanding and the associations they make with Afghanistan are misinformed often or, you know, there's a whole spectrum, but it's, we have had to um, kind of choose between either being invisible or being hyper visible for terrible things that have nothing to do with us. Um, so, you know, I work with immigrants and children of immigrants. People come from all over the world, but the Afghan experience is very specific because you know, I refer to us as the displaced among the displaced because we come from a place that it's almost as soon as our families left it, it almost, it feels very inaccessible. And I do also want to point out the fact that, you know, I was born and raised in the U.S. I do come from a very westernized culture. People are always surprised at how, frankly, like educated I am and that I have tattoos and that I... <laughs> I like to think I have cute style, but, um, you definitely have cute style. Let's just like straighten that out right now. You definitely have cute. St- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but people are often surprised by that. And it's true. I think, you know, we in the diaspora have very, a uh, specific experience that is even removed from what's happening in Afghanistan. And I think we owe a lot of respect and deference to the people who, do still live there, you know, probably had opportunities to leave and chose not to run away and leave a home that they have known their whole life. Just one example, you know, people are very excited to see, of course, you know, resistance to the Taliban or, or, you know, people doing things that are very dangerous and risky. But that's not how everyone feels in Afghanistan, because there's been fighting and war for so long that you know, it's easy for me to go to the protest this weekend and, you know, that's not lost on me. I want to, and I feel proud to, and I can't not do that. However, I have an immense amount of privilege doing that where I think our responsibility in the diaspora is to amplify Afghan voices as much as possible, not just Afghan American or Afghan Canadian or any other uh, immigrant voices. As part of this mystery for many of us in the West around Afghanistan, that it's a place that for the entirety of my lifetime has been a a place of conflict, very confusing and not, it's a country that's not set up in the same way that many of us here in the West really conceptualize things. And I think it might help our audience a little bit to talk about Afghanistan, even before the U.S. occupation and uh, operations over there, of a little bit more of what some of these generations of uh, people from Afghanistan, Afghan Americans, are facing in this very transformative change, not just here in the last week, but really over the last 40 years. Yeah, you're talking about the Afghanistan that my dad and mom would tell me about when we were growing up. that exists, you know, only in their memories. And Afghanistan is not a perfect place. It, there, 
was and has always been corruption in the government. Find me a government that doesn't have corruption. There is racism and intolerance with among different tribes and communities within Afghanistan. There have been lots of imperfect things. But what I remember, what I grew up hearing about was a very, uh, I guess I'll use the word modern. I don't know why I need to like point that out, but just um, a really beautiful society, both of my parents, you know, my parents met and fell in love at Kabul University. I see pictures of them. My mom also had a really great sense of style. I really think it's an Afghan thing. We (laughs) love to make sure we look good. I went to a protest last two weekends ago, definitely saw very nice handbags. I was like, yes, I'm among Afghans. Like this is, we always make sure we look good. But, you know, my mom would tell me that she was obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor and the Beatles and also Afghan culture and music as well. My dad, uh, in many places in the country and actually came here twice. The first time he came as a Fulbright scholar and lived in Seattle. So he did a year of high school in Seattle, actually with the Vonnegut, those Vonnegut, which is wow. my favorite story ever. And he went back, but then when my parents married, then they came um, shortly after that as well. So a very progressive, open society, similar to many other places around the world, uh, really beautiful, tons of um, art and culture and tons of history. What a lot of, what I often tell my clients and the people I work with, their concern is um, I don't feel Afghan enough and I don't feel American enough. I don't speak the language. I don't feel connected to my culture. I didn't think that was allowed. No one really encourages that where I grew up. And so we have, we're stuck in this in-between place. And what I remind people is that it is never too late. Afghanistan always welcomes us. Our culture always welcomes us. That's a defining characteristic of Afghan culture is hospitality. It's super annoying when you're like a 12-year-old and everybody's <laughs> offering you food multiple times and you're like, okay, I cannot eat anymore, but it is very rude. <laughs> I think a lot of children of immigrants have that experience, but uh, hospitality and generosity is a hallmark of Afghan culture. And that also applies to us that our, our motherland and our culture always welcomes us no matter how long it takes. So I grew up understanding Afghanistan as a place full of ancient culture, some really good looking jewelry, really strong fighters, and just a very diverse, beautiful place. Uh, And that place doesn't seem to exist right now. It seems like there has been such a huge transformation of the perception of Afghanistan. And you mentioned September 11th. We've got a couple of other conversations that are relevant that we'll, we'll link in the show notes that I think provide, we have one that's about Iran and one that's about the MENA culture generally. But I think it's it's something where when you talk about this and, and each time you kind of, well, I don't know why I need to say modern or I don't know why I need to say it this way. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there is a perception mm-hmm. and this is kind of a different take on or what therapists get wrong question because we ask that for most folks, but it seems like there is this misperception and this deep seated bias that has plagued Afghan Americans at least since September 11th, if not prior mm-hmm. to that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. That's a really good point. I think there's also a misconception to something that is very 
intertwined with Afghanistan, which is Islam, um, you kind of can't, they're not the same thing, but you can't talk about one without the other. Mm-hmm. And of course, just like any community, there is a spectrum of how devout people are, how conservative people are, what cultures they choose to continue, you know, and that's always people's choice. I think people in the West love to latch on to these sensationalized out of context images and swoop in with saviorism about, well, we have to liberate people from their own culture. And I've been thinking about this a lot, like the whole modesty thing about people wearing headscarves or, or wearing modest clothes. Like we were all cheering when Billie Eilish was doing it on the cover of whatever magazine and her political mm. statement about wearing baggy clothes so nobody can objectify her body. But when <laughs> whole countries of women do it, it's apparently, oh, poor things. Anyway, that's a side note. That's a, uh, <laughs> that's a blog post in the making. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think there has been, it's, we, unfortunately, we, we suffer from this either complete invisibility and mystery, or that's not my concern, or that's over there, or just this really distilled, stereotypical highlighting of things that may or may not even be part of our culture. Some of those things are part of our culture, and there's nothing wrong with them. Many of those things are not. And I had a conversation with a client who is really exploring Sufism and mysticism and other aspects of Islam, which my dad is a scholar and and will take any opportunity to teach me slash lecture me about. (laughs) Um, So I grew up with a very peaceful, merciful, beautiful, like nature-based version of Islam that is very, I mean, I just have warm, fuzzy feelings about it all the time. And I know my peers did not. So it's for me personally, it's really hard to wrap my head around the idea of Islam as some sort of oppressive, scary, you know, God fearing, like any sort of, there's a a spectrum. You can be very conservative about certain things. Um, But that has never been part of my experience and not part of a lot of people's experience. And so I think I do feel this obligation to, say like you know not all Afghans or not all Muslims um because I'm sort of it's either there's no idea of who we are or I have to overcompensate for these negative ideas about who we are and we politically culturally socially have never been able to define ourselves to other people for as long as I've been alive normally during an episode like this, we'd ask some question around what are some cultural considerations that working with a specific population like Afghan-Americans would be. And it seems like you're answering that question for us as far as provide a lot of open space and let somebody define what, what it is because our ideas might be very much entrenched in kind of what we've seen, and especially for those of us who've really only paid attention to Afghanistan from American occupation sort of perspective. I don't know how to move on to this without kind of asking the same question anyway of, in addition to clients being able to define what their Afghan identity is, 
Are there some cultural considerations that therapists should be aware of when working with people from this community as far as their approach to mental health treatment and things that therapists can be prepped with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You're asking me this today and what's top of mind for me right now is don't feel sorry for us. Please don't bring pity into the therapy room. We can feel it from a mile away. And it's condescending, we'll say. Um, So that's number one. There are some things that apply to working with any sort of immigrant community from anywhere, which is definitely educate yourself outside of the therapy room. Understand some basic history, vocabulary, you know, political, religious, cultural players, just so that you have a frame of reference at all. But then, yes, it's okay in therapy when you're working with anyone, I think, to let your client educate you about their own personal experience, but not about not having them be a representative and educate about the experience of their country or their culture as a whole. And that's a different, that's a pretty specific It's a nuanced thing to do, which is rather than saying, what does that mean? I'll say, what does that mean for you, for example? Also understanding the, like I said, for example, generosity and hospitality is a huge part of Afghan culture. So, you know, most of us, you know, grew up, we're born and raised here. So it's not a huge cultural shift, but understanding that that might be what they're experiencing at home. Or if you do, if you are working with an immigrant, a recent immigrant even, to understand the the power structure that we talk about, the privilege in the therapy room is always there with someone who is very deferential or polite. (laughs) uh, It's going, it's going to take you, there's this thing in Afghan culture, you have to always offer three times. And so you might think you're saying, well, I asked them and they seem fine with it. You know, you may have to double check or triple check just to make sure that the person is comfortable if there's not something else that they want to tell you. Again, I'll say that that would more apply to someone who's closer to Afghanistan, but it is something that I see with my family all the time. Um, <laughs> and again, the the collectivism and the obligation to family, the importance of honor and pride. I wouldn't necessarily say it's as much about, we do love being bougie. We do care about like financial success and, you know, but it's all in service of respect and honor for our family, that there's a lot of pressure to not exclusively, but to have a strong connection to your community through your cousin, your hundreds of cousins that everybody has, or you know, every Afghan knows every other Afghan, basically. Um, <laughs> so to not shy away from that, like I did for a long part of my life. So those are some things that kind of come to mind when I think about what you would need to know if you were working with an Afghan American client. You mentioned kind of doing some research and kind of the Google search as well as, you know, kind of informed research. If this is someone's Google search, if this <laughs> is the beginning of their Google search, are there things that you think that therapists should know when working with an Afghan-American client or, or topics that they may want to plug into their search engine that, that we can help them with right now? They will definitely want to read more about the impact of 
intergenerational trauma and the military involvement in their home country, um, they will definitely want to seek out primary sources, basically. So people who are Afghan or Afghan-American, um, there are a lot of, you know, we have many sister cultures, but there is nothing else like being from Afghanistan. Yes, the U.S. has done this in many other countries, but it is, there are many parallels, but it's not the same. So just saying like, oh, well, I had a Middle Eastern client or I had an Egyptian client or that's great. That's their experience will be completely different from ours. So just making sure you hear as much as you can from actual Afghans and Afghan-Americans to keep on the lookout for sensationalized <laughs> headlines and images and to really understand, to challenge your own biases. You know, I think I'm still learning history as well. I'm by no means an expert on anything other than my own experience. But I think when people do, it doesn't take very much digging to realize, whoa, a lot of the things that I was told or I just assumed to be true actually have nothing to do with Afghanistan. So um, I think it's pretty eye-opening for people. Oftentimes there are healing practices or, or ways of healing that people from various cultures embrace that we are woefully not even taught to think about and ask in our cross-cultural practices. Are there any unique things to consider as part of this grieving process, part of this healing process that might be things that we would encourage if we are working with clients who are Afghan-American right now? That feels like a pretty tough question to answer. How do we cope with something on this scale? Um, as you were asking me, I was remembering that prayer is pretty healing for a lot of people. Not for everybody. Some people are not religious, but um, I think the ritual and the act of prayer is really healing for people. Being in community spaces, so making sure that, you know, if you're not Afghan as the therapist, you might say, like, of course, I'm here to support you in my way, but do you have connection? Do you have safe connection to people that um, do accept you and that you feel comfortable with? Um, and it's not always accessible to people. A lot of people, my, you know, when I was growing up, I went to a pretty um, progressive, friendly mosque, but I was rebellious. I just like hated it. I just, it was very boring. I never wanted to go. But if I did have that, that would be one of the first places I would go. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. So, um, that's something to ask about. You may It may even affect the time of day that you have your session. If someone is devout and they're praying five times a day, your session may, you may need to uh, just make sure your session time doesn't interfere with prayer time. Um, and also remembering that for many Muslims, fasting is a, an act of devotion and it can be very healing and cleansing for people and it can give a sense of um, I don't want to say control. It can give a sense of agency in a, at a time when everything feels out of control. What is, what is it important for those of us who are not African-American to make sure that we're checking in on and, and for us to know about the experience over this past week and, and honestly for much longer than that, but what is it important that we're aware of that maybe we don't know as uh, non-Afghan Americans? Mm. 
what I've been thinking several times this week is that there isn't there doesn't seem to be language for what we're experiencing. It is it feels very fundamental and it feels painful on a on a large on a scale that I can't that's really hard for me to even grasp myself, let alone describe. Um, that there's it's it's new, it's brand new. It's well, it's not new, but it's very present, it's fresh, and it feels like people are reaching out and saying, I didn't know what to say, but I wanted to say something. And those messages are helpful. And it's hard for me too. I kind of go back and forth because people are reaching out and saying, well, what can I do? And part of me is like, thanks for asking. I am in the midst of a lot of things right now between trying to make sure that my family is safe and alive. And some of them are seeking emergency visas. Some of them do not want to leave. I'm, I'm looking at my phone all day, making, just waiting for them to have service to, so I could just hear from them to make sure that they are alive. So you may want to do a Google search and just look for fundraisers, look for um, advocacy efforts. There are scripts laid out for people to contact people in the government to make sure that visas do get approved and that refugees are welcomed. There is a really exciting fundraiser for the rescue missions and it's got $5 million or something, which is pretty badass, which is I, amazing. I wish I could just like see who that pilot is, which is great. But there are also millions of people who either don't want to or are not able to leave. Um, and, you know, I said this earlier, I don't think people should, you don't have to be American to deserve aid. You don't need to be a refugee to deserve aid. So I really encourage people to give to the efforts that are on the ground that are staying in Afghanistan who are really handing food and clothes and water and medicine to people um, who don't have those resources. Are there any particular organizations that you would encourage our listeners to look at supporting? Yeah, there are so many. Literacy and Love is one organization, although I heard that they recently paused their donations until the banks open, but check with them. Um, Hand to Hand Sadaqah Group is another organization that has been in Afghanistan uh, since before this, and they're hand delivering supplies to people. I think there are a lot. Instagram is lit right now, so there are a lot of um, financial donations that people can make. There are organizations throughout the country, uh, throughout the U.S. that are coordinating airport pickups and hotel vouchers. And, you know, if you have a bag of clothes you're taking to Goodwill, you know, they're taking everything because people are showing up with nothing. I would also really encourage anybody who has access to legal services. If you are a lawyer, you don't have to be an immigration lawyer, really helping people understand their, just the basic visa paperwork will be very, very helpful. People are overwhelmed and a phone call and a plan will help people a lot. Uh, attending protests and just showing up and being visible is really, really helpful because that leads to media exposure. And then that leads to people <laughs> deciding that it's worth it, that it looks good for them to say something about Afghanistan. So we'll take it. Um, there are so many. Making sure that you are either letter writing or phone calling or emailing members of Congress to make sure that 
um, people are able to come in uh, expanding the process. It's pretty limited about what people are qualifying for right now. Half of my family qualifies. There are some people who may not. Also, anybody who is a Farsi speaker or a Pashto speaker, um, you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to know how to do anything. If you can do translating services, all of these are ways that people can help. So I think if you, one, you can definitely look look on my Instagram, but there are a ton of Instagrams, Instagram accounts that um, have been doing this activism for a long time. We're glad that people are paying attention to it now. It's a little frustrating that people think this is brand new or that they're suddenly interested, but we'll take it. Hey, we'll, we'll take it. Um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, we're so organized and we're so activated right now. I'm myself personally, I'm even new to this, but it feels like home. I mean, it just feels like whenever I see all these other Afghan people, I'm like, it just, it feels like I've always been here. So I would really encourage people like to get involved. You don't have to earn your way in. You don't have to qualify. You don't have to be like welcomed in. Like we Afghans love allies and we love (laughs) welcoming people. So um, that would be really helpful. Definitely check out a lot of the uh, organizers who are coming together on social media. And um, if you have any questions, you can always just ask. Before we close up, because I think this is an important conversation that needs to remain out there, there needs to be support given all those things. But before we close up, are there any are there any any additional points that we need to make? Are there anything is there anything else that our modern therapist needs to know? No, I don't know. I'm tired. <laughs> oh, and even on that note, when we we're first responding to this news, Katie and I, and the balance between wanting to share this message and heighten this message while also knowing that people like Sarah are responding in a time of very, very complex feelings and not always knowing kind of the best balance that we can bring as hosts of this show. And it's with a tremendous amount of gratitude and respect for Sarah and all of the other people going through a time of existential crisis and just complicated feelings around so many things that we hear you that you're tired we're here we're trying whatever it is that we can even imperfectly to help with everything Mm -hmm. and for you to show up and share your story share what you're going through in order for the rest of us to be able to step in so that way hopefully you can get some rest and you can get some resolution and know that our modern therapist community is grateful for you and your time and willing to step up and that's our call to action for our community here is find what you can do it might be time it might be action it might be money but there are a lot of people going through some very very complicated feelings right now and always 
whenever you can, step up and do what you can. Yeah. We will include some links in our show notes to the organizations that Sarah has suggested and uh, as well as her practice, which I do want to give you an opportunity to let people know where to find you in your practice too. Oh my gosh, that's right. I didn't even mention my women's group. Yep. It is the best. It was the best when I started it. It is the best every time I run it. It is more timely and needed now than ever. But we have been meeting. Oh my gosh, this sounds like something I probably don't want to put on the air. Like we have been meeting online in secret groups, these Afghan women. (laughs) (laughs) We were toying with the idea of um, putting together a retreat and we were like, oh, where can we go do it? And somebody was like, they're never going to let 12 Afghan women on the same flight ever. (laughs) So we laughed at it. Nobody else laughs when I tell that story because they're like, I don't know if I'm allowed to laugh at that, but it was the best. Um, but yeah, we have been a meeting in a peer support group. I run a shorter six-week version of it, and then I run a three to four-month version of it. So we're actually wrapping up one group now. And so when I run it again, when I get my life together and wrap this group up, I'm going to be offering it free of charge. And that's for any Afghan women. Um, you don't have to be in California. You don't have to be in the United States. Um, you just have to be awake at the time that we offer the group. Um, and I'm putting the details together now, but I'm anticipating there'll be a pretty big need. Um, and it's just one of the joys of my life to run this group. I make sure that I speak to every single group member first to kind of match make the right people in the right group so everybody feels comfortable and safe and is challenged a little bit but not too much Um, I love running groups and we get lit like it is everybody is so happy when they sign on to group first everybody checks if you know their cousin or family member is in the group which I don't think has happened yet but then everybody realizes how much we have in common how much our stories parallel they're like, I didn't realize that you could be Afghan and blank, like every other thing that we are. And it's really, really healing and beautiful. And now more than ever, it's it's been a gift for myself to be able to kind of gift this to my community, but also for me to heal because nobody else gets it. And so when we, you know, this week when we've been having sessions with my one-on-one clients as well, it's just been nobody else gets it and so it's been very um i feel really grateful that this has been put in place that i put this in place by me i did it but you did um, it. i did uh but i'm really grateful that i have it now so where can people find about the group about your practice like what is, what is what are the actual contact info there yes uh the best place is our website which is prospecttherapy.com That's also my Instagram handle, which is Prospect Therapy. Um, That's me. I run that account. It's not some company. So if you message me there, um, I will answer. But you can find all of our information on our website um, and information about our group, about therapy, about everything that we're offering. So those are the two best places to look. And any final thoughts? Thanks for having me. It was nice to talk to you too. We will include all of those links in our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Sarah Stanzai. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. 
Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 